For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning and with our congregation turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. This is going to be our central focus this morning, verses 16 through 25, which I'm going to read, but we're going to be from chapter 18 through chapter 20. We probably will not finish chapter 20 this morning, or at least the, the uh, uh, passage in chapter 20, the first uh, 13 to 16 verses in chapter 20. Uh, but um, it, it's an amazing passage, and it, is, it covers a very, very short and brief period of time in the Lord's life. This was about six to nine months prior to his crucifixion. And there are a lot of events, a lot of uh, inquiries that are being made of Jesus as the, uh, as the snowball effect uh, begins to gather in Jesus' life, knowing that uh, Calvary is just a few short months away. This is uh, last Sunday. We started to look at a topical series of messages uh, during Advent uh, entitled Gratuitous Grace, and we are looking at textual messages, not necessarily expositional messages. So you need to keep that in mind. It's not that our intent to look at every single verse and to exegete, to take out of the Uh, passage what is there. We'll do our best to give you an overview, but the focus is on the grace of God, and without the incarnation, obviously, we would not know grace. So we thank the Lord for his incarnation. I want to begin reading this morning a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's found in in two other Gospels as well, Uh, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. And these are the Gospels written according to, uh, or the Gospel rather, singular. The Gospel doesn't change. So this is the Gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. The Gospel never changes. Verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Or that I may have rather eternal life. So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, and John's, uh, excuse me, Mark's gospel said, Jesus said to him in love. He loved the young man. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. May God bless the reading of his holy word in our hearing. Let's pray as then we begin to look at gratuitous grace. Who then can be saved? Why grace is needed. Father, We ask that you'd illuminate our hearts to the truth of the word this morning. And so there perhaps are some here this morning that are like the rich young ruler, not necessarily rich, but they have a question about eternal life. 
And so, Father, as we follow along the way Jesus answered these inquiries, he instructed the young man, first of all, about his sin, and then about his grace. Grant that to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the deepest distinctions among human beings is not the good and the bad. Some good people, some bad people. But those that know themselves to be bad, to be sinners, and those that don't know themselves to be sinners. You see, the wicked tend to know that they're sinners. They don't need to be reminded. But not so among the self-righteous, those that are carefully obedient. Christ deliberately exposes the guilt of the spiritual righteous, the self-righteous. Those morally scrupulous folks that are addicted to the law, that are addicted to list, and that loathe the wicked. This is grace. The exposure of assumed impeccability. Scrupulous obedience, which is often just a veiled disobedience. This is God's grace, alerting sinners to their rule-keeping, and our rule-keeping automatically disqualifies us from his heaven. So, although we read here from the middle of chapter 19, this passage actually begins back in chapter 18, and then follows through chapter 20. So Jesus now knows and he's told his disciples that he has an appointment with Golgotha, an appointment with death. And 33 years before when he invaded this earth, he came as a vehicle of the grace of God. Now most of these passages, and we're going to look, we probably won't look at all of them this morning, but there are six passages that I want you to, that we'll see from chapter 18 through chapter 20. Most of these passages have to do with limits, thresholds, gates, situations that human beings try to define by our minimum involvement. First slide, if you would. So let's define grace again. We closed out with the definition of grace last Sunday morning in uh, the previous slide. But as we look at this passage, who then can be saved, why grace is needed, then grace, the biblical definition, the simplest definition, there are theological definitions, but the simplest is it's, it's God's goodness toward those that deserve only punishment. So I reminded you that Jesus has an appointment with his crucifixion. And so these passages, or this, this long passage rather, which actually begins in verse 21 of chapter 18, has to do with questions that uh, people that came to Jesus asking questions, when do I reach the limit, the threshold? Or if you put it another way, what is the least I can do with respect to spiritual circumstances? What can I get away with? It's a marvelous, marvelous understanding of grace as Jesus paints the portrait. Dane Ortland, who is a a senior editor for Crossway Publishers in Wheaton, Illinois, has said that Each of these groups practices disobedient obedience. We'll see that as it unfolds this morning. Next slide, if you would. So we're going to look at six portraits 
in these passages, um, the, the primary one is uh, obviously the one on eternal life, but to lead up to that, there are other people that are asking Jesus questions. So, what is the minimum obedience required to satisfy God? What, what's the limit that I have to do? And that's basically what the rich young ruler said. What's my limit? Okay? So, there's six of them. First one is a teaching on forgiveness. And Peter says, what's my forgiveness limit? And we'll look at that in just a moment. The second one is on marriage and divorce, the first part of Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, what's, what's the limit? What's the threshold that a man has with respect to marriage? What can I get away with? The third one is the children. Suffer the little children to come unto me. And the disciples push the children away. So essentially they are saying, what's the child, what's a child's limit to coming to know you as Savior? These are not very important people. The fifth one as we, or the fourth one rather this morning is the rich young ruler. Now interestingly enough, he's rich so immediately the disciples thought, All rich people go to heaven. That was the teaching of the Pharisees. And so that's the reason that they say what they say in verse 25, 26 of chapter 19. Who then can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, who can be saved? So what's the least I can do to be saved? I want to get into heaven, but only by the skin of my chinny-chin-chin. Fifthly, Peter, after the young man goes away sorrowfully, Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. We're right there with you. Hey, we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Peter, always a spokesman for the disciples, says, what's the limit for my reward? And then, God willing, which we probably won't get there this morning, but we're going to come back. One of my favorite parables begins in the 30th verse of chapter 19. It's the parable of the laborers. How long must I work to get equitable wages? What's the limit? So, all of these having to do with limits. These are pertinent questions. Next slide. They are real questions. They are about circumstances of life. But as with most human questions, they have an ulterior motive. They are trying to, and as we see in this passage that we've just read, justify themselves. And they're attempting to justify themselves before the Messiah. I've heard you said this, but this is the way I look at it. Now, Christ answers each question. This is not always the case. There are times in the Gospels, as you go through them, you find that Jesus has asked a question, and he doesn't answer it. So he is, he has grace on whom he chooses to have grace. He is never compelled to show compassion or grace or mercy to anyone. And he is right when he refuses to do that. I know that's difficult for us to understand, but it is what makes him God. Now, in this particular incidence, in these incidences, these six incidences, he does answer the question. But I would remind you that is rare. It's the exception rather than the rule. So, he talks about the kingdom of heaven in these six portraits. What is the kingdom of heaven like? And in Matthew, after all, he is the king. That's how Matthew presents him. He's the king. And so, look if you would at verse 
23 of chapter 18. Look at what he's talking about here, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. Look at verse 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The kingdom of heaven is this way, and this is how my Father looks at it. My Father governs and controls the kingdom of heaven. Look at chapter 19. And look at verse 14. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. I'm the king. This is what heaven is like. Verse 23, which we've just read. Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of my Father. I'm the king, my Father reigns in heaven, and he has dispensed to me the instruction to teach you folks about heaven. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sets on his throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also set on 12, tri- on, on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to heaven, Peter. <laughs> I don't know if Peter grasped this or not, but that's a marvelous statement. That's an assurance. That's a promise from Jesus Christ. And when you do, You're going to sit on the thrones, but it's not going to be like you think it is, Peter. And that's why we have the parable of the laborers in chapter 20. And in chapter 20 and verse 1, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. So in chapter 18, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. And here, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. So let's go back and briefly we'll look at These limit questions. What's my limit? What can I get away with? Chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Is that my limit? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. What's my limit in forgiveness. And so Jesus does an amazing thing, as he always does. He teaches with a parable. He teaches Peter with a parable here, and he teaches Peter with a parable in chapter 20. So this passage, chapter 18 through chapter 20, through middle part of chapter 20, is bracketed by two parables. And a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And I'm not going to read the entire um, parable, but what I want you to see here is he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, there's some commentators that think that Jesus is here talking about Herod Antipas, and there's a good possibility that he was. If you glimpse the kingdom of heaven, the way to compare it is you look at an earthly king. Antipas was an Idumean. He was not Jewish. We've talked about that many, many times. He was a half-breed. But Antipas's annual income, he talks about talents here. The annual income of Herod Antipas was 900 talents a year. Now, let's put it in common vernacular. Each year, he received as token of his dominion, $2 billion. This is 2,000 years ago. I look about a congregation this morning, and I know we got wealthy people in here, but none of you get a $2 billion tribute a year. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. 
And then Jesus kind of portrays how Herod Antipas would have acted. And when he had begun to settle his accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now, you do the arithmetic, and 900 talents is 2 billion. Then we're talking trillions, maybe even quadrillions. In other words, this man could never have paid this debt. And so we go down through all of this, and we find that he sends out one of his stewards, and the uh, verse 28 But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is, a denarii, by the way, is a good wage, and we'll see that in in chapter 20. It was a wage paid to a Roman soldier. It was also wages paid to craftsmen. The day laborers in chapter 20 are not craftsmen. They're just guys that have strong backs and weak minds. So a hundred denarii was about, could be, about a year's wage. So he came to the, and he came to him and he laid hands on him. He took him out of the throat and he said, you need to pay me what you owe me. Now the king had just exonerated him of an unbelievable debt. And he, showing no mercy whatsoever, say, uh, takes this man uh, and throws him in prison. Verse 30, and he would not but went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. And so this happens and occurs a couple of times. Verse 34. Verse 32. His master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. And indeed he was. You see, he didn't know that he was wicked. But, as I said at the beginning, there are those people that don't think they're wicked. (laughs) But this man was. Rich young ruler is wicked. The disciples are wicked. Everyone in these vignettes and these portraits is wicked save Jesus that's where grace comes in we're sitting here this morning and we're decked out church looks beautiful we don't think that but the scripture says differently and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. What's the limit to my forgiveness? And of course, Jesus began the parable by saying 70 times 7. There is no limit to how often you forgive. You will never reach a threshold. And when someone wrongs you, we are required according to the way Jesus forgave us to forgive. So that's the first picture. Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees come to him. And they're always asking these. They, they, the Pharisees are these the smartest guys in the room and they're always attempting to trip Jesus up. So now it came to pass, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, came to the region of Judea behind the Jordan. So probably took a, a few days. They walked, obviously, and great multitudes followed him. And the Pharisees came to him testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? What's my limit? What's a man's limit? What's the threshold with respect to marriage? Which teaches us a great deal. It tells us that the Pharisees did not respect marriage. As self-righteous as they were, Marriage was not in their purview. And so they're asking Jesus with the expectation that he's going to exonerate them if they choose to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. But the Lord doesn't. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And then Jesus says, here, he points out sin. Peter, your sin is that you've put a limit on your forgiveness. Pharisees, your sin is that you have a hardness of heart. Permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her uh, who is divorced committed adultery. Now, his disciples get this. His disciples are with him. 
And it shocks them. Wow. If such is the case with a man and with his wife, it's better not to marry. They take a very literal view of what Jesus said, and they should have. Now, obviously, divorced people can be forgiven, and divorced people can have great marriages. That's not the issue. The issue is, this is what my father expects, and it's up here. It's a limit you cannot reach. Now, the disciples understand what he's saying in verse 10. Look across to verse 25. When his disciples heard it, talking about the camel going through an eye of a needle, it's impossible. They were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They said, here, it is better not to marry. And now they say, well, who can be saved? This is impossible. Jesus said, yeah, you're right. It is impossible. Next slide, if you would. The disciples are beginning to have their eyes opened by the Spirit of God, and they understand the extremely high expectations of God the Father. Pharisees still have not, uh, they have not gathered that. Now, in the middle of this chapter, you have this, this marvelous story about the children. And in verses 13 through 15, Then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Okay, now they had already said it's hard to be married. And now children who are the results of and the offspring of marriage, the, man, uh, the love between a man and a woman, are brought to Jesus. And Jesus apparently was somewhere else or at least uh, being entertained by someone else. And so they say, hey, keep the kids away, okay? What's a child's limit? Let's limit their approach. Jesus is a mighty important man. So let's keep the children away. And so essentially what they're saying is, do the children qualify for the kingdom of God? And obviously the answer to that is no one qualifies for the kingdom of God. No one. In fact, in this particular passage, he says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, in heaven, we're like children. And we are children of God. So he lays his hands on them, the scripture says, and he departs from this particular passage or from this particular place headed to another place. What we glean from the, the story about the children is the one thing that qualifies anyone, including a child, for the kingdom of God is that no one qualifies. It is all by grace. All by grace. This is not to denigrate children and their innocence. It is the teaching that Jesus explained to his disciples. We've had children, had grandchildren. I wouldn't denigrate any of them. However, I do know this. My children, our grandchildren, don't go to heaven any other way than by grace. And yours too. It's all of grace. So let's take some time and look over the next few minutes at this marvelous passage, this marvelous teaching that Matthew has given us here in the middle of chapter 19. Who then can be saved? Who can forgive? Who can remain married? Who can respect and understand that children reflect the kingdom of God? And who then can be saved? So you have a very arrogant young man. 
Now, the Bible describes him as a rich, young ruler. So if that were the case, he was a ruler in the synagogue in this particular area. And if he were a ruler in the synagogue, he was at least 25 years old and in all probability about 30 years of age. Jesus at this time was probably 32 to 33. So they're about the same age. And so Mark's gospel says that the young man comes running to Jesus. But he slumps away. He runs to Jesus and falters as he leaves with sadness in his heart. He asks a vital question. What must I do? What shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now, in the previous verses that we've taken a look at, the same question is asked in different ways. It's the picture for us. There's a concern that is raised by Peter about forgiveness. There's a concern that is raised about the Pharisees in marriage. And there is a concern that is raised by the disciples. And this is framed by Matthew in the approach of the rich young man to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he spends a great deal more time in this passage talking about the young man. So, he stresses the law. Jesus stresses the law. Now, we know the law doesn't save, but Jesus stresses the law. And there's a reason for this. At verse 17, he says, why do you call me good? Why are you referring to one as being uh, uh, intrinsically good? There is only one that is good, and that is God. Now, obviously, Jesus is not drawing the attention to himself, not at this particular point in time. He's getting the young man, first of all, to understand that he's going to list commandments. But he's going to avoid the first four, at least in the beginning. No one is good but God. You should know that. The disciples should know that. And so this young man comes to him and he assumes at the judgment day he's going to make the cut. He's going to go to the board and uh, in, in the gym class, and he's going to see he's made the cut. He's now on the basketball team, football team, baseball team, whatever, volleyball team. He will have made the cut. Look at me. I'm a ruler in the synagogue, and on top of that, I'm rich. So he pats himself on the back. Some com commentators have said why this young man even came to Jesus is beyond. He, he must have been a Pharisee because he's trying to promote himself. Scripture doesn't tell us that, so that's a conjecture, and we don't want to dwell on that. So Jesus starts with the law, and he starts with the law because the man has not a clue, not a clue that the law is not the gospel. I pray that all of you here this morning understand that. The law of God is not the gospel. If you're listening and watching via the internet this morning, the law of God is not the gospel. This young man did not have a clue to that. And so Jesus takes him back to the law. And then he becomes arrogant. Verse 18, he says, All right, which ones? Keep the commandment, Jesus said. Which ones? What's the limit of the list of, com of commandments that I must adhere to? I've known people like this. You probably have too. What's the limit? Which commandments are the most important? We do that, don't we? What's the limit? What do I have to obey? Now, always good to go to the mailbox 
Our daughters make fun of us because that's what we do two or three times a day just to make sure the mail has come because we're old people now. And it is important to go out and get your mail. Right, Megan? Right, Stephanie? It's important to get your mail. AARP, you make, need to make sure you got AARP. You need to make sure the Medicare is paid for your bills, which I thank all of you that are still working for paying your taxes so that our retired benefits can continue. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. You work for 50 or 60 years, maybe you'll get it too. And I received in the mail this week, and I don't know why I was singled out, but a uh, series of papers with the title, The Bible Teaches That All People Are Going to Heaven. And there's even a website. Of course there's a website. This is 2020. Allpeoplegoingtoheaven.com, I believe. Let me make sure. And you can go look at it. I went and looked at it. Just don't believe it. All right? Yeah, allpeoplegoingtoheaven.com. So you can't take that domain name. All right. And so I read through, it's, it's, it's an interesting read, but it's, uh, there's a Greek word for this, baloney. And I've read a number of things in my life, but uh, I, I began, <laughs> I was outlining, checking things, all this stuff. I said, I'm not going to, hey. I'm not going to spend my time. The man begins with serious assumptions or serious uh, uh, mistaken assumptions. And uh, anyway, most people want to know how to get to heaven. This man never mentions grace at all. And the Mormons will never mention grace. It's all, what can I do? What's the minimum I can do? And that's where we are with this young man. You see, but they, these are not the right questions. What's the minimum I can do? The right question is, who will admit that they can't make the cut? And believe me, no one admits they can't make the cut until they are confronted with the Jesus of the Word of God. No one. You must be born again. What does that mean? Can I make the cut? No. Do you understand that, there, that we can never make the cut? Obedience is part of the solution, but it's not what Jesus is teaching him. Which ones are the most important? Now, if Jesus reiterates five of the six horizontal demands of the commandments. He doesn't start with the first commandment, first, second, third, or fourth commandment. He doesn't. And there's a reason for that. He had already told the young man, listen, there is no one good but God. So he had implied in his man, what, what a teacher Jesus is. What a masterful understanding of our human psychology. You don't need to be thinking about me. You need to be thinking about my father. So he admits the vertical obedience to God, the first four commandments. And he stresses the horizontal demands of number five through nine, the ones that he lists there in uh, verses 17 through 19. And then he includes, and you need to love your neighbor. Now, that's not the highest commandment. The Shema was, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he doesn't do that. And he omits the 10th commandment. And the 10th commandment is on coveting. As I said, 
What a masterful understanding of the sin that blinded the minds of this seemingly perfect young man. And verse 20, the young man said, I've kept all these for my youth. What do I lack? And so Jesus drives home the 10th commandment. I know where your heart is. Your heart is back here. And when your heart's back here, it's impossible to get to heaven. Now, this matters not whether you're rich or poor. Poor people can have their heart here too. It matters not. Jesus said it is impossible, and that doesn't only apply to rich people. It applies to all people. This is grace. You see, the young man's problem is covetousness. His sin is covetousness. Covetousness is internal. It is invisible. And for the young man, the external law is morally manageable. I can do these. It's that covetous part that is giving me a fit. And so, not shy of his self-confidence or his self-righteousness, he says, okay, so what? Um, there must be something I still lack. So he has managed the external morality of the law. And he's brazen about it. I've done all these things. Jesus said, no, no, you haven't. There's one thing that remains. That's what Jesus does. He may be dealing with you this morning. He finds the one thing that grates on our last nerve. The sin that easily besets us. And that's the one he's going to drive home. He did this with a woman to dwell. He did it with Peter. He's going to do it again with Peter. Because we have to be reminded that grace, that everyone, that's what chapter 20 deals with, everyone gets to heaven the same way. In the grace of God alone. Next slide. So Jesus loves him, the Gospel of Mark tells us, and he bores right straight into his heart with grace. Now, it is grace to convict us of the very sin that damns us. It doesn't take, we don't have to break every commandment, although we do. It's just that one. And the Bible, Jesus said, if you sell what you have and give it to the poor, if you want to be perfect, this goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in chapter 5 closes that out. Therefore, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. His disciples began to get, they, in, chapter, in verse 10 of chapter 19, they said, it's better for a man not to marry. And then in verse 25, they said, well, who then can be saved? No one can be perfect. Give it to the poor, have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so he lovingly sets the rich man up to demonstrate his heart's idolatry. Your idol, your God, is your wealth. Was it necessary for the young man to give away everything he had? No. But Jesus pointed this out in his life as the sin, as the stumbling block, as the veil that blinded him from coming to salvation. He said, if you do this, you'll have eternal life. So what can I do? That's what Jesus said. This is what you can do. But he wasn't unwilling to do it. Luther said, there's no breaking of commandments number 10 through, excuse me, number 2 through 10 without first breaking the first commandment. And that's what Jesus is inserting here. Your God 
is not the God that I talked about back in verse 17. Your God is your possession. Now, let's close this out this morning. We'll have to come back and finish, uh, finish the chapter next week, which I figured we would. So the disciples come to him. And Jesus turns. And twice he says the same thing. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says the same thing, but he offers a, an illustration. And this is just, this is, uh, there was no gate in Jerusalem that was too small and the camels had to squat and go through. That's not the interpretation of this. In fact, Jesus himself interprets it in verse 30 or verse uh, 26, rather. It's an illustration. That's all it is. Camels cannot go through the eyes of needles. And so it's hard for a rich man to enter. And then the disciples, it dawns on them, okay, what's going on here? He says, if the disciples, when they heard it, they were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved? That's the question. Who then can be saved? So Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So Jesus interprets what he means in his response to what the disciples asked next. Who then can be saved? So let's ask that question this morning. Jesus addresses the young man's deepest anxiety, his financial security. And the heart is convicted and he leaves like a petulant child. Thinking himself to be perfect, he slips away. And so, as Jesus instructs his disciples, he reminds them, it's worse than you think. Who can be saved? It's worse than you think. For no one can be saved except by grace. The word impossible there means it's unable to be done. It's the very same word that Gabriel told Mary. With God, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, did Jesus hear that in the womb? Or did he already know it? It's worse than you think. But it's so much better. Go to the next slide, I think. I didn't put this in my notes. No, that's for next one. But here's what he says. The rich young ruler, Peter, the Pharisees, the disciples are thinking intuitively. They're looking at their circumstances. And so what they're doing is they are naturally assuming that with moral management they will please God. They'll do the right things, not do the wrong things. They are rightly or they are wrongly assuming that they can domesticate the law. And they are wrongly assuming that you get what you work for, if you work for it, with great labor. That's what chapter 20 is about. We hear that probably daily in America. If you work hard. And so we take that in the material world and we bring it into the spiritual world. If you work hard. And when you think this way, Jesus said, it is impossible to get to my Father's heaven. But he says, with me, with my Father's lavish grace, they, you can get more than you ask for <laughs> without working for it. 
and that's the rub. That's too good to be true. But it is true. All things are possible because of the gratuitous grace of God. Adolf Schattler, a German theologian, many, many years ago wrote, Above the impossibilities of our own making stands the omnipotence of grace. Where's your soul this morning? Grace is needful because it is impossible. You will never, you or I, neither one will ever please God with works. Never. Because just as soon as we get one area of our life cleaned up, which we never will, there's another little closet we've got to go into. And we've got to clean that out. You've got to blow out the garage. You've got to straighten things up. All these wonderful Christmas decorations. Wednesday night, the boxes were drug in. Things were all over the place. They looked beautiful this morning. But there was clutter. And that's the way our lives are. The beauty that we have is because of the grace of Jesus Christ to lost and dying sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We thank you for the word. We thank you that there is indeed nothing that we can do. And for Americans, that's difficult, Lord Jesus, for we have been taught since we understood what work was, that if we just worked hard, got our education, got our skill sets and so forth, that we could succeed in this great country. And in many cases, we can. That has nothing at all to do with gaining acceptance into your kingdom. And so I pray this morning, if there are any here that are still relying on their insufficient works that they would be reminded that it is all of grace just like children it's all of grace have your sweet will your divine way in the remainder of the service in Jesus name we pray amen if the Lord spoken to you this morning then you by all means uh, can talk to me or Vance or anyone after the service this morning that knows the Lord we'll be glad to take you through the Bible Show you from the Word of God how you can, by grace, be born again. We're going to sing uh, a closing hymn. Uh, after we do, uh, let's see. I'm going to ask Brother Craig if he would have a benediction, and then Mike will leave us in a closing course. Then you are dismissed. Be careful this afternoon. Trust we'll see you tonight.